0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: And welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. This podcast is now in session with the Honorable Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox presiding on this podcast, which looks at new movies on streaming services or in theaters and compares them to films from days gone by, similar vintage or genre or star or what have you. And this week, as you have probably uh, determined from my not so clever intro, we are looking at courtroom dramas. We are looking at films set inside the courtroom with the release... This month of The Trial of the Chicago 7 Written and directed by Aaron Sorkin I'm Stephen Cook and I'm an arts writer here In Halifax at the Chronicle Herald
0: I'm Karsten Knox and I'm a film writer I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris You can find at HalifaxBloggers.ca
1: And we're going to be back after this quick Recess
0: So Stephen I uh, uh, Preparing for our Lends Me Your Ears Episode on Courtroom Dramas I went and looked for the uh, Wikipedia definition of a legal or courtroom drama, a genre of film and television that generally focuses on narratives regarding legal practice and the justice system. The American Film Institute defines courtroom drama as a genre of film in which a system of justice plays a critical role in the film's narrative. So legal dramas have followed the lives of fictional attorneys, defendants, plaintiffs, or other persons related to the practice of law, et cetera, et cetera. So they are... by their very character, very stagey, static films. They tend to be all in one room, a group of people get together in a courtroom. The drama generated by characters often just seated in chairs, presided over by a judge. They are not typically action-packed or especially kinetic films, but they are frequently very entertaining. And certainly the cliche of the witness standing up in the box and saying, you liar, you lying, that's that's from <laughs> the courtroom drama. Now, in recent years... They've been mostly found on television. The, the genre has, has migrated into television on shows like Law and & Order and The Good Wife. Um, best known in feature films, probably uh, 12 Angry Men is maybe the – certainly considered the best, uh, greatest courtroom drama. Or To Kill a Mockingbird, uh, the adaptation of the Harper Lee book, which is um, – I think because those are both so well-known, um, this is why we won't really be talking about them too much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, we we can certainly mention them. And th- both of those films have connections to other films that we'll be discussing. So they'll definitely uh, be included in our yes, briefs yes, uh, later in the episode.
0: Um, you know, so here we are mentioning them. Um, and, we you know, we can't be comprehensive. And we should probably nod to the fact that, that in the 90s, John Grisham novels. He was his own franchise. He was like, and I'm not the first person to say this. I'm sure, but he was he, like superhero movies of the '90s were courtroom dramas adapted from John Grisham books. There were uh, there was the firm. With Tom Cruise. I recall that being a pretty good one. There's The Pelican Brief with Denzel Washington and Julia Roberts. It was not so good. I never saw Francis Ford Coppola's The Rainmaker, but he made one. And then there was The Client and uh, Runaway Jury with John Cusack. These are all films certainly within this genre. And uh, we decided
1: not to watch any of them. <laughs> And even Robert Altman made one. uh, The gingerbread. Oh yeah,
0: that's right.
1: Was it Kenneth Kenneth Branagh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember. Yeah, British guy. so and 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 the Rainmaker, as I recall, I mean it wasn't top flight Coppola by any stretch, but it was it was pretty good. It was, I mean, it, I guess it was kind of a work for hire kind of project to pay for some more vineyards or something. But but it was actually a, a pretty decent movie and um, good performances from I believe Matt Damon and also a nice uh, Danny DeVito. Yeah, that
0: yeah. Well. So I mean, I think we could do a whole separate show just on the Grisham adaptations, but you know we want to nod to them here because clearly they are part of this genre, even if we didn't actually go and watch any of them. Um, and we should probably also point out that there are a lot of lawyer movies, movies like Michael Clayton, um, uh, you know, which is a great film, but it's it's not really a courtroom drama. Um, our, our conversation today was inspired by a film that's in cinemas and on Netflix right now called The Trial of the Chicago 7. As you mentioned, it's written directed by Aaron Sorkin. And... Um, it's uh it is, I think, really plays to Aaron Sorkin's strengths. For people who know Aaron Sorkin, of course, he is Oscar-winning screenwriter. He created the West Wing. He's been writing sort of stagey, wordy, very chatty films and television shows for a lot of years. Um, he wrote the play that was that was adapted for a few good men, uh, which we'll be talking about as well. Uh And uh, yeah, and he he wrote and directed The Trial of Chicago 7. This is his second feature film as a director. His first was something called Molly's Game, a film I like quite a lot, but I still feel like his strengths as a writer are manifest. Like he is a very gifted writer. There can be no doubt. But uh, as a director, it's still he's still a little rocky. And I feel like some of his limitations as a director still are on display in the trial of Chicago 7. It's based on a true story about a group of uh, sort of young radicals in the late 60s who uh, crossed state lines to protest in Chicago at the 1968 Democratic National Convention. They were arrested and subjected to a lengthy trial on trumped-up charges suggesting they incited a riot. Uh, and this, while the evidence didn't really support it, nor that the seven in question even knew each other before the riot began. So uh, so we get to know these characters, all uh, who, who come from different sort of Ideological backgrounds, but do share kind of a cause. They were certainly there all for the same reason, Uh, and uh, some of the characters are based on you know based on recognizable figures from countercultural history. Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman. He's probably the flashiest performance, the attention seeking um, radical who rubs Eddie Redmayne's future California Senator Tom Hayden the wrong way. Uh, Redmayne's really good. He's in fine in his solid American accent and uh, recent Emmy winner, Jeremy Strong is in it as uh, Jerry Rubin. He's quite good as well. He's a, uh, He's an actor who fans of succession will will recognize. Um, yeah, Mark Rylance. I mean, this is a really strong cast, uh, uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Uh, Stephen, what did you make of the film? We haven't talked about it at all, so I'm looking forward to hearing what you've got to say.
1: <laughs> I, I quite enjoyed the film. Uh, I, I do find that... Uh, The storytelling of it is a bit cluttered uh, as as we it's it relies a lot on sort of flashbacks and from the courtroom and setting things up and there's a lot of back and forth. And if you don't necessarily know much about the actual case, it it might uh, take a little bit to get your head around it. it. might might not be a bad idea to do a little brushing up on the history of it before you watch it but uh, but overall I I thought it was an interesting presentation of uh, of this kind of landmark event and uh, as uh, many of the reviews and think pieces on the film have stated it's it's not really so much a film about the counterculture in the late 60s early 70s as it's kind of a more pointed kind of Look at where that event brought us to today, with uh, with the, what's happening in the American justice system, and and how um, the federal authority is kind of riding roughshod all over um, jurisprudence in, in the United States. And uh, I think it's it's kind of a cautionary tale as well as a retelling of uh, of this important landmark uh, case in history. But it's you know it's something I used to hear about a lot growing up, you know, I, I was reading about, you know, the Vietnam War and and, and the, the, the Seven and Chicago and it didn't all necessarily all fit together in my head as to how all of these things were connected. And I think at least the film does a, a pretty good job of, of putting all those pieces together about how dedicated people were to getting the U.S. out of Vietnam and the kind of action that it took to finally make it happen.
0: Yeah, I, I think it does a good job in, in taking setting this drama in that time, although I would argue that some of the costumes and wardrobe they never quite are convincing as like authentically that period there's a staginess to it where I'm like oh look at that hair it's it's a wig you know it's like <laughs> like I sort of felt like like there was some of that that didn't quite reach realism but uh, but it's it is very entertaining it's very funny in places and it's it feels it, it definitely strikes relevance you know issues around um, Police violence, um, police brutality, issues around racism in the system, issues around freedom uh, to to protest and uh, and, you know, who's to blame when when. People get into each other's faces and, you know, there's there's property damage and there's uh, uh, violence when people are getting hurt in the streets. Um, all of those kinds of issues, which, of course, have been very much a part of uh, 2020 are on display here. And uh, and that's that that really gives it a, 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 a little electricity that feels really, really relevant in a way that when they probably made the film, they might not even have realized how relevant it would feel in 2020. Um, But yeah, I really enjoyed the performances. I enjoyed, I am a fan of this genre generally. I think, Stephen, you said that you weren't actually that much of a fan of courtroom dramas when we were talking about it.
1: I I am not. I have to, I have to confess that of most uh, film genres, courtroom drama is one of the things that kind of, kind of is a, is a warning sign for me that that I may or may not be my kind of thing although having said that we ended up watching a lot of films that i enjoy for this episode so I, you know i, I and I, I should know better than to just discount an entire genre um you know it's it's like saying you don't like country music or something well you know but there's so much great <laughs> music out there. you know so, and the courtroom drama is the same sort of thing it's like some of them are very cliched and wrote and uh you know that you they've hit all the beats you expect them to hit and even the, the good films do the same thing so that's maybe that's why because there's a gray area between the good ones and the the not so great ones but um but but this was a case where it was highly entertaining mostly due to the characters involved I mean Aaron Sorkin you know his, his first and foremost he wants to entertain the viewers you know obviously there are points to be made and and he's very adept at making them, but I I think he is uh, primarily concerned with holding your attention, and you know, making it maybe a little larger than life, as the case may be. But uh, when you're dealing with characters like like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin and Tom Hayden, it already is kind of larger than life, and and um, and I uh, you know I I think he he did a good job of portraying what a circus this trial actually was. I mean, I, I've read a couple of things that say that they could have even gone farther apparently judge hoffman played by frank langella was even more of a kook than he's depicted in this film and more hard harder to deal with and and more um detrimental to the cause uh, of justice than is portrayed here which is kind of hard to believe given how it uh, goes down in the film but uh you know given given this era and, and all the things that happened in the Nixon administration and so on, I guess maybe it isn't that hard to believe.
0: Yeah, I guess not, you know, and you yeah, talk about Nixon and, uh, and, and the, the more conservative aspects of, uh, American society at the time. Um, uh, but yeah, Langella is amazing. And this is a really great performance from him. I, I, love hes So he's so set in his ways, but seems so recognizable. Um, uh, also wanted to point out, uh, uh, who, uh Abdul Martin, who the second, who uh, I first saw, I think, in HBO's Watchmen, and he's really good here as the one African American uh, defendant who's basically been asked to be part of this just because he's black. Like he's basically on trial for being black, and uh, and that is a remarkable. Place to be, um, and also really good. Alex Sharp, John Carroll Lynch, Mark Rylance as defense attorney William Kunstler, and um, and in a delightful cameo, Michael Keaton, uh, who really really does well with his you know ten minutes or whatever of, of screen time.
1: Um, <laughs> I almost didn't want to mention Michael Keaton because I. I only saw the teaser trailer before seeing this, which doesn't have him in it, or, or I mean, they flash the name so quickly at the end, you can't really tell who's in it anyway. But um, the, there's a longer trailer that does have him in it. But I didn't actually know that Michael Keaton was in the film when I saw it because they don't they don't give you the cast names off right. the top of the film. A lot of films don't do that anymore. So when he actually appears, it was a genuine surprise for me when he shows up as former Attorney General Ramsey Clark, and he is. Yeah, like you say, he's only got a few minutes of screen time, but uh, he's so terrific in, in those scenes.
0: He is, you know, and I guess it's a bit of a spoiler to say, say that he's in it, but because he's a very showy, like, surprise. Yeah. But but you know what? By the time he shows up, you will have forgotten that he is supposed to be in it, because there's a lot going on <laughs> a lot of characters. Film, yeah. um, I will say that, uh, as I said, the... It's, it's very it's a sausage party i mean there are no decent roles for women in this in this uh in this story i i think at least one prominent female role might have been if he had you know adapted in a different way i think it could have been really welcome um, and i would say that as long as we're in the courtroom or in the antechambers around the courtroom the the film really works like i i love the scenes where people are discussing their options of defense or or their you know the the scenes in the courtroom themselves are are great um, but once we get out of the courtroom I felt like the um, sort of the scenes of on the streets and the riots and the protests were pretty stagy and I didn't quite buy them I felt like like Sorkin could use some help uh, you know with his visual acuity um, as a filmmaker I think he, he, he has a way to go before he, quite, he feels comfortable. Doing all that stuff, but uh, but you know, once he as long as he has people in a room talking, that's where it really works. <laughs> um, and you know what's funny that I was just thinking about Sorkin's history and and his uh, his previous work, and he I I was reminded while researching this that he he wrote a Broadway adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, which was very popular apparently. Um, and uh, of course, I haven't been to. Broadway to see anything in a long time, but uh, but yeah, it of course, and that's as I mentioned at the off the top that that's one of the best known courtroom dramas is that 1962 cinematic version with Gregory Peck. But uh, Sorkin, of course, also did wrote the Social Network, which was directed by David Fincher, uh, one of the great films of the past decade. Not really a courtroom drama though there is a scene that runs through the film that's sort of a tribunal of sorts which i guess you could qualify as a courtroom drama but um i was going to ask you Stephen, how you felt re-watching a few good men going back to the early 90s and one of sorkin's earliest hollywood scripts
1: well it, it's funny watching it after having seen trial of chicago 7 and uh you know at the time that i watched it 92 i had no clue who aaron sorkin was at that time i don't think and and uh Boy, can you ever hear his voice? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Now, you know, it's 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 based on a play that he wrote, um, which I guess uh, you know was I think the the rights to the play were snapped up even before it was publicly staged i think mm-hmm. uh, the, the word the word on the street as it were about this uh this play was that it was strong enough to make a pretty good feature film and i i i think they were right um it's actually based on a real case that uh involved sorkin's sister who was a, a jag uh, naval attorney uh, so it has this kind of uh, there 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 is a feel of uh credibility about the story i think that that having that basis in reality helps it because um you know it's directed by rob reiner it is one of his uh, I, f- I feel it's one of his his better films i mean you know i don't think anything would top the princess bride or spinal tap but as far as his straight dramas go i think it's it's one of his better films but it does feel very '90s, nice. <laughs> and uh and that's not necessarily a bad thing but it, it is it it just the 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 way the, the kind of the snappy patter and some of the way that the characters kind of fit these archetypes feels like a very 90s kind of thing. You've got Tom Cruise is at peak cocky as <laughs> this lawyer who's would rather, you know, he, he's he's basically just serving in the Navy long enough to, to kind of get his credibility, I guess, uh, doing what his father had wanted after he graduated from law school. And he'd rather play baseball than actually do anything terribly legal. He You know, he's, he's basically all about settling and plea bargaining and not getting anyone near a courtroom uh, or someone else calls it his Persian bizarre kind of, you know, haggling law mode. So, uh, and uh, you know, an ambulance chaser in a uniform, whatever you want to call him. So, and it's just, it's just, you know, it's clearly like Tom Cruise in, in his kind of full on mode as that kind of cocky character who has to get take, taken down a few pegs before uh, finally coming out on top sort of thing. So, yeah, it is kind of a nostalgia trip in a way, uh, and it just has that kind of heightened sense of reality that that '90s dramas tended to have. So, but it's still very entertaining. It still it still works really well, and of course, it's got an amazing cast. I mean, you, you really can't top um, you know people even in support people like Kevin Bacon and Kiefer Sutherland in supporting roles, and and Kevin Pollock who's there to you know give out the snappy remarks and diffuse the more serious scenes and everything but uh, even people like jt walsh and christopher guest who may only have you know short amounts of screen time really uh you know really make an impact and and you know reiner is is good at kind of keeping it moving he he, I, i don't know if that comes from working in television uh maybe like like you know sorkin as well but uh but it's even watching it for free on the ctv website which you can do you can watch it completely free of charge but they do insert ads even with the ad breaks it's still kind of Kept me moving along.
0: Yeah, I uh, I really liked watching it again. I don't I don't disagree that it's very 90s in its musical cues and its style, um, but I felt like the strength of the script and the themes really lifted it in 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 a way that I would I think it's a better film than the Trial of Chicago Seven. But uh, but you know it it just in in terms of it gets to the core of what it means to be a, a a soldier. And serving your country, and you know you have to follow orders. But what if those orders are illegal? And what if that illegal order causes the death of one of your brothers in arms? That sort of thematic schism is what makes the script really sing, and and it it provides it. You know, I think in the audience it makes you think about violence, about the violence of society, and the patriarchy, and the relationship between fathers and sons. Um, You know, I think it's a great script, and it's a pretty great movie that I uh, I really. Enjoyed. And as you say, the, the cast makes it really work. Uh, the, the, the scene, we've all seen the scene of, even if you haven't seen the movie, you can't not have seen the <laughs> scene of Jack Nicholson, you know, saying, you can't handle the truth, you know, in, in the courtroom. Uh, but that is, it is so tense and it's so exciting because what Cruz's character doing there is trying to provoke the reaction in the witness to say something that. That to admit to something that he shouldn't be admitting to, and um, and that's what makes it an amazing moment. And uh, and yeah, and as you said, all those other characters. It's it's a it's a terrifically fun movie to revisit after all these years. And you know, full full marks to Sorkin for his gifts.
1: Well, I'm glad we got to hear your Jack Nicholson impression instead of mine. <laughs> <laughs> mine is it's uh it's not good uh yeah obviously nicholson is a, is a key selling point in the movie he was uh, front and center on the poster and even though i think he has like what four scenes yeah over the course that. of the film but uh he certainly makes a meal of them i mean he's fully in coiled snake mode throughout the, like even even when he's being friendly and chummy there's there's that sense of Something beneath the surface that that uh, you you don't want to disturb or you don't want to poke at too much, and of course that's exactly what uh, Demi Demi Moore's character and uh, and Tom Cruise's lawyer uh, get up to. There, you know, he's 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 the snake they've got a charm and uh, and tame basically, and it's uh, you know that's that's really what the the film is all about leading up to, and it, of course it is interesting to watch this uh, given its themes to watch it after Abu Ghraib and and things that have happened. You know, within the military, in in various uh, tents and war zone situations, and it it it's almost like a precursor to things that we learn later on, and it does have some some resonance in that sense. But uh, but it it does uh, you know, as for a film of that era, I think it, it works it works pretty well. Um, and uh, it just you know you don't see these kind of casts anymore, really. It and and I do agree. I think it is a better film than Trial of the Chicago Seven in the sense that it is more focused. And uh, it, it's not trying to do quite so many things at once um, as Trial of the Chicago 7. Uh, I think maybe I like Trial of the Chicago 7 a bit more because of my kind of anathema <laughs> to, to Tom, for Tom Cruise. But um, here he is doing what he does best, and it's, it's hard not to appreciate that on some level. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. Court is back in session as we take a look at films set in the world of legal jurisprudence courtroom dramas of a, a, a beloved genre and staple of big screen storytelling uh going back to well I, there are silent dramas that uh take place in the courtroom um, the uh the musical chicago for example is actually you know was based on a musical that was based on a story that was based on a movie that was actually a silent film I think um, that was produced by Cecil B. DeMille. And then there was a sound version uh, that was more comedic um, based on the, this woman's murder of her husband. Um, uh, Roxy Hart with ginger Rogers. And then it became the musical by Bob Fosse. And then the more recent uh, award-winning musical with Richard Gere and um, Rennie Zellweger and Catherine Zeta Jones. And, uh, we're not talking about that. Although it is interesting to think about that, most of these are, are dramas. But that is a courtroom musical, and there are courtroom comedies as well. But uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna stick to. Um the, the more heavy hitters among the batch and the next one is is certainly uh, a drama it's a mystery it's based on a successful Agatha Christie stage play and directed by the great Billy Wilder and that's Witness for the Prosecution from 1957. Uh, it stars Charles Lawton as a wily barrister who's uh, just out of hospital for some heart problems and he gets uh, he's been advised to to not take on any big cases and just do kind of rote legal work in his office uh and not uh, not get excited um but then along comes a case that's just too good to pass up uh leonard vole played by tyrone power is accused of killing a woman who may or may not have been his mistress uh he's a kind of an inventor and a jack of all trades who was um kind of looking to this older, wealthy woman to be kind of a patron, maybe to fund his next invention. And he's got this marriage of convenience to a woman named Christine, played by Marlena Dietrich, uh, who is is terrific here. And uh, and and it's basically that you're watching kind of the the wheels turn and the puzzle pieces fall into place as we try to figure out what happened when the older, rich woman is found murdered. Leonard Voll, t- played by the very charismatic and very... Uh, You know, very sympathetic. Tyrone Power swears his innocence and and uh, and goes. You know, has this you know marriage of convenience issue where you're not sure if if he loves her or she loves him, and it all plays out in the old Bailey with uh, Charles Lawton delivering a delicious performance as the the you know the wise beyond his years uh, barrister who seems to know every trick in the book and uh, and is also uh, being nagged by his. Uh, Nurse Miss Plimsoll, who's trying to keep him on his diet and take his medicine, played by his real life wife, Elsa Lanchester. So there's a lot of witty banter between them. Um, You know, Marlena Dietrich is magnetic, as always. And and there's lots of great British uh, supporting cast members, people you might recognize from other films, Ian Wolfe and Una O'Connor and lots of familiar names, from uh from the the character character actor roles uh from over the years so it's it's uh it, it's got that crackerjack agatha christie plotting uh you know there's going to be a twist at some point along the lines and and i think uh i think wilder uh, definitely did some tweaking of the dialogue to make it kind of sparkle in that witty billy wilder way i mean he was a writer before he was a director and uh there's no way that uh a screenplay uh, directed by him is not going to have his hands all over it and uh, this, this is definitely the case it was definitely a lot more witty and funny than i remember there, there is a new version of this that was done i think probably for the bbc with toby jones uh playing the charles lawton role but it, it watching the trailer for that it looks a lot more glossy soap opera-y you know over the top and uh i find this you know wilder is fully in control all the way of the story and the tone of the film
0: yeah, I would be interested to seeing that BBC. I think it's a miniseries that's available uh, from the the BBC or or at least a British production. Um, yeah, I Andri- have got it on Andrea Acorn. Oh, okay, there you go. Yeah,
1: Andrea Riseborough, who we mm-hmm. just saw in Possessor Uncut. Yeah, isn't it?
0: Yeah, yeah, she's great. I mean, she. I would. I watch pretty much anything she's in because she always makes it better. I find she's one of those actors. Um, but uh, but yeah, I was really impressed with Witness of the Prosecution. This was probably of all the ones that I hadn't seen before that we're watching for this show was the one that I enjoyed the most, uh, Billy Wilder. I mean, as soon as I found out that this was a Billy Wilder film, I was like, oh, I'm excited because really Wilder made a lot of great feature films and this is one of his I hadn't seen. Um, and I was so impressed with Charles Lawton uh, as Sir Wilfred Rob- Robarts. He's the barrister in charge of the case. He's, you know, he he the whole subplot of his health being failing, uh, is really convincing. Like he does seem like the close-ups, and he's sort of in court and he's perspiring. I'm like, Jesus, he gonna have a heart attack. Like he just does not <laughs> seem well. And I really, I really believe that part of it. Um, and I, I found that really interesting, although it's usually played for laughs that his nurse is really working hard, trying to help him. And he's, you know, resistance that urge. All he wants to do is hide away in his office and smoke a cigar. But, uh, his charisma is really off the charts. You cannot take your eyes off him. And I read somewhere that uh, Daniel Day Lewis is a big fan, or was a big fan of what Lawton was able to do with his uh, his career and in, in his roles. Because uh, he's not—he's certainly not conventionally handsome, but you just—he's—he's he's magnetic. He's—he's he's so good in this. And um, I gotta say, um, speaking of the twist, without revealing it. I like to think of myself as pretty good at spotting an actor in costume. Like if you watch Cloud Atlas, there are actors playing multiple roles in a film like that. But there is a character here who shows up later on and I did not recognize them. I just was completely fooled. All I was like, oh, there's a weird kind of semi-Cockney accent. I don't Oh, That's odd. (laughs) And then when the reveal happens, I was like, holy cow, I totally didn't see that. I was amazed that I was fooled, and I just—I guess—I mean, this is like one of those humble brags, you know. I'm actually really good at uh, at spotting this, <laughs> but but this time I I was not. I was not at all. I didn't see it. I did not see it coming, which is a real pleasure, you know. When the when the movie fools you, uh, you know, but but in in that clever sort of. Uh, Christy Agatha Christie sort of way and then also with performance then I'm yeah I, I really enjoyed that aspect of it
1: oh you, you you almost defied the message at the end of the film
0: <laughs> <laughs> I know I know I was really trying to walk the line there without giving it away
1: that's uh yeah I'm glad they added that because that's like an old stage thing because I remember going to see The Mousetrap I think at Neptune once and at the end of the play after the play is done and maybe they've done the curtain call or whatever, one of the care or one of the actors steps out of character and says, don't tell. And I think it's, it must be in the script and a requirement of Christie's that, that someone actually tells the audience not to reveal the twist ending. Mm -hmm. And they, they do it again here only in a text, uh, the management of the theater suggests that for the greater entertainment of your friends who have not yet seen the picture, you do not divulge to anyone the secret right. of the ending for Witness of the. Well,
0: prosecution. I guess I'm just saying that there is some trickery going on here that fooled me, and I don't. I'm not fooled often, given how many movies I watch. So uh, I think it's to the credit of the film, and I, I think other people will be fooled as well.
1: Yeah, I. I. It's funny. I, I watched it years ago, like probably in the '90s on Laserdisc, and that was probably the last time I watched Witness for the Prosecution, and. And I I remember at the time I think I just ah, Agatha Christie courtroom drama who cares and then when I was trying to do a run through uh, the Billy Wilder films I hadn't seen I realized oh okay well I guess I have to watch it and of course you know he he certainly elevates the material I mean Agatha Christie is usually it's usually fun on some level but I I find that. Uh, a director and a screenwriter usually have to bring a fair bit to bear on it to make it kind of really exceptional for the screen. I feel, I feel that's what happened here for sure. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I mean, these days, what Kenneth Branagh is the uh, the main purveyor of Agatha Christie. I mean, we could do a whole Agatha Christie episode, I'm sure, if we wanted to. Oh, we probably
1: we probably will because we got what Death of the it's Nile. It's coming soon. Yeah, coming yeah. Up? I
0: think. it I mean, it's again. It's hard to know whether it'll be postponed, but it is scheduled for a, a cinematic release in the next month
1: or so. And uh, I I have a fun version of the Alphabet Murders with Tony Randall of all people playing Poirot. <laughs> okay. Um, from the 1960s, that's a all lot right. Of fun, so but so anyway, but that's now we're just talking. Yeah, shop, yeah. but we have another film to we get. We do uh,
0: Anatomy of a Murder from 1959. I watched in pre- preparation for this episode from Otto Preminger. Um, it's based on an actual case uh, that uh, the the writer wrote a a, nov- a novel, um, and the writer was a former Michigan Supreme Court justice. Uh, and uh, so this is based on act- what actually happened. I mean, that that really surprised me because Jimmy Stewart is Paul Beagler, He's a former district attorney in a small town in Michigan, and uh, he likes to fish, and he's, it's a really great role for him. He's very laconic and cool, and he's got, uh, you know, he's got a pretty good life there, but he, he needs some money. And, uh, he's not really a defense attorney, but he does, he gets the opportunity to represent, um, the case of a military man played, uh, by Ben Gazzara. He play a character named Frederick Mannion. Uh, he's been charged with murder. He killed a man named Barney Quill, a bar, a bar owner who allegedly raped his wife, Laura, um, played with a lot of verve by Lee Remick. She's the, the flashiest role here, I think. Um, the film kind of sees her as a free spirit and, uh, you know and she's she's uh kind of intense and uh and she's you know it's it's the the portrait of a uh, a woman living in a small town where all the men basically judge her for being the way she is and, and the film i think kind of serves her up as a little bit of like a cautionary tale there are some pretty conservative politics going on in this film um but uh you know and and sexist politics let's let's be straight about it but um It is a fairly complex and I think uh, fairly, I I must've been fairly shocking at the time when this film came out in the late fifties to deal with issues around sex in a very, um, and violence in a very straightforward way. Um, And uh, basically what uh, Jimmy Stewart's lawyer does is with the help of psychologists, comes up with this plan to uh, convince the jury that his, his client, this is a case of temporary insanity, and uh, and that's what it's about. It's about like, and it really digs deep into the the legal system and the kind of thing that the relationship between the lawyer and client as well, and how they kind of concoct this defense together in a way that I think probably a lot of legal experts would call you know leading and uh, client interference or something like that I, I I suspect there's a there 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 is a lot of stuff about this film that was pretty scandalous at the time that it came out
1: oh definitely Perminger was famous for pushing people's buttons and, and certainly the the production code and uh, what he could get away with and, and sort of push the bar forward in, in a lot of ways and certainly dealing with a uh, a sexual assault and the frequent uh, you know what's what often a lot of people remember after seeing this film is the frequent use of the word panties. uh, Oh yeah. Right. Describe a a key piece of evidence in the case. And they kind of set it up in a way that uh, uh, to kind of get it out of the way. So it doesn't become something you giggle at repeatedly during the course of the film, but it was the sort of thing you wouldn't necessarily hear in a feature film at the time. And, And there are aspects of it that, um, I think we're, we're, we're kind of groundbreaking, but it it's um, now unfortunately you had to watch it on a streaming service that interrupted it with commercials. It's, yeah, uh, on
0: CTV. It's available there for free, but it is uh, it, it's it made a long film that much longer, and it it dragged in places as a result.
1: Yeah, it's two hours and forty one minutes long, uh, and uh, that is uh, I, I often find that the length of some courtroom dramas uh, is kind of maybe what the the reason why I might have some issues with it i feel like they do often tend to drag when you kind of know where it's headed or what the climax is going to be about but but this takes its time telling its story and and the characters are so enjoyable i mean jimmy stewart playing i'm just a small time country lawyer you know that (laughs) yeah it just again something that has since become like a, a horrible horrible cliche but it's jimmy stewart you know it's hard it's hard it's impossible not to believe him in this role and uh watching the wheels turn in his mind as he processes the case and figures out the best uh, course for his client is, is a real pleasure. And I I find it watching it. Uh, I, a friend of mine loaned me their uh, criterion Blu-ray of it. So I got to watch it all in one sitting, uh, in the, in the best copy possible. And it was really highly entertaining. It did not feel like a, like a two hour and 40 minute movie. So, um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the casting of it and the authentic setting. It was filmed, um, you know, largely where a lot of what happened in the original story took place, and and Preminger is, you know, I mean, in the next decade he'd make these kind of sledgehammer issue films, uh, but in this film I feel like his storytelling skills are are, are really really well honed and not, uh, you know, he he's not going for something over the top like in the Cardinal or Advise and Consent, which are enjoyable in their own way and are, but but they don't really have that kind of oomph and, and depth of character that you find here um with stewart especially when he's matched up against george c scott as dancer the prosecutor you know the the back and forth between them is is razor sharp it's it's fairly early in scott's career i think i mean uh, the, uh, dr strangelove is a, is a couple of years away but uh but i find you know when those two are kind of you know not at each other's throats, but certainly matching wits, uh, I find that the film is is kind of at its best and and, uh, and really shines.
0: Uh, yeah, I agree with you there. I think that's the best part of it. Um, I found it an interesting kind of portrait of, of rural life. You know, what with the... Uh, the Duke Ellington, Billy Strayhorn soundtrack. It's very jazzy, and it has a certain kind of urban grit, which I don't necessarily associate with, you know, uh, you know, roadside bars out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, there's a sophistication here that uh, feels almost noirish. that uh, it feels like a weird fit for northern Michigan. You know, no disrespect intended to people who are living in northern Michigan. But uh, <laughs> anyway, even Duke Ellington even shows up in one scene, so... So that is a pleasure to be had in the film. Um, Now, uh, before we finish up this segment, uh, we should mention Judgment at Nuremberg from 1961, directed by Stanley Kramer. Um, And uh, it's basically a fictionalized version of something called the Judge's Trial of 1947, one of a number of US military tribunals following the Second World War. Uh, it stars Spencer Tracy as an American judge brought in to hear the testimony of, uh, and, and, you know, hear, hear from a number of, of people who were, I guess at, at certain point, uh, they, they were, um, key in, in certain atrocities during the war. And basically it's a war crimes tribunal. And, uh, you hear the various stories of the various characters and, uh, and then you also see actual footage from uh, the concentration camps that is used, like actual archive footage is used in the film, which gives it a lot of power that uh, I'm not sure that the film has otherwise. But I did really, I mean, this is a very ambitious film. It's more than three hours long. Uh, I did really enjoy the film as much as you can enjoy a film that is about this subject matter uh, and about the discussion of of a german culture about superior mor- morality and the suggestion that most average germans had no clue of what was happening in the camps all of those kinds of conversations are had right there in the courtroom and uh it's fascinating how it it you know and it allows for some great brief performances by people like montgomery clift marlena dietrich as well judy garland after having not been on screen for some time, makes a return and she's very good here. Uh, Maximilian Schell, I guess won an Academy Award for this as the defense counsel. Um, and of course, William Shatner, which we will have to mention because it's like, oh, it's William <laughs> Shatner. <laughs> uh, what did you make of uh, of of judgment at Nuremberg,
1: Stephen? Well, I remember watching it for the first time years ago and going in thinking it was going to be about, you know, the trials of like high ranking Nazi officers and that kind of thing. But I, th- I think in a way by going after the judges in this you know sort of recreation or dramatization of of a trial of of the legal system i think it maybe gets more to the heart of how the nazi regime was able to operate um you know between how everyday citizens coped and adapted and were complicit um in what happened in germany in the 30s and 40s uh and and these judges who you know were basically told to pervert justice in the name of the greater good for the state uh I, i feel like um you know, you can watch the trial of Adolf Heichmann and there are other movies that address what happened to, you know, better known and and more um, notorious uh, figures in history. Uh, I think this does a better job of getting to the nitty gritty of, of of how the German people were able to, trans, you know, make the transition from, you know, the Third Reich into the post-war world and also how the Third Reich could really happen uh, based on, you know, people going going along with it and and the toll that it took on on average citizens who weren't necessarily jewish or weren't necessarily sent to camps but you know in the case of montgomery cliff's character just had you know life was you know one court order and his life is irreparably irreparably uh, destroyed uh and uh you know it's these these judges who um you know just kind of followed the party line and you know we're only following orders as the famous uh nuremberg uh line of defense goes and it's 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 pretty chilling uh i mean it is the stanley kramer film he does he is kind of famous you know in latter day film history for being a bit of heavy-handed <laughs> in his approach and I, I think that's certainly in evidence here um you know it's it's there's a lot of speeches it's uh, you know things are driven home with this big stamp of importance but we are talking about nazi germany on trial so there is going to be a certain amount of uh Kind of serious, um you know, position taking over the course of the film. But I think I think the the powerful moments of people like Clift and Garland and, and Burt Lancaster, who's a bit showy, I think in in his kind of controlled reticence. I think it's it's a you know it's it's more of a heightened performance than maybe another actor would have given. But it's it's you know it's Burt Lancaster. What do you need to do? <laughs> but, but I I think you know, and the film does. Also balance things out by talking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and that there were eugenics laws in the United States, and the death penalty, and you know it's 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 kind of a reminder to, to keep an eye on your own backyard because uh, you know similar things uh, were happen you know are possible in other you know democratic countries. So there there is a certain amount of fairness in it, and 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 Spencer Tracy is very good at um, being our guide, if you will, through through this world and through this trial. Even if uh, his character is a bit, I won't say two dimensional because it's Spencer Tracy. He does imbue his character with a lot of character and a lot of life, but maybe in in a lesser actor, it would have been a pretty, pretty cardboard character. Hi, I'm Lindsay
0: Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food food podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale how about that you can find us on itunes and stitcher so come join us we would love to share
1: our stories with you
0: so here we are in the third part of our look at courtroom dramas on lens me your ears the film podcast and uh there were other movies of course we can never be comprehensive in an hour uh, on this show, but there are other movies I would hope was hoping to talk about. Um, you know, I wanted to give a nod to a Morant*, which was a favorite of my childhood. Weirdly, I guess I was a weird kid, but I really like this South African-based uh, uh, wartime courtroom drama, um, but I suspect we might have a chance to talk about that in another capacity. Um, and, you know, I also wanted to maybe mention Court from 2014. This is a, an Indian film written and directed by Chaitanya Tamhain, who had a film at TIFF this year called The Disciple, which I really loved. And Court I really liked as well. It's a powerful, subtle, satiric look at the Indian legal system. I really recommend that if anyone gets a chance to see it. But, uh, What we did watch, though, is a uh, a classic of the courtroom drama um, genre, and that is Sidney Lumet's The Verdict, with a script by David Mamet, based on a novel by Barry Reed uh, from 1982. This is one I hadn't seen before, and in it, Paul Newman plays Frank Glavin. He's a washed-up ambulance chaser of a lawyer, but because he's Paul Newman, we like him a lot. And uh, he's having a hard time of it. He drinks too much. He has one client, um, but he still has a little bit of the spark of what got him into the business. We learn his sort of past and how he had a lot of trouble uh, at one point or another. He was embroiled in a scandal. Uh, Eventually, he went independent. uh, But his... His identity as a lawyer as and as a crusader hasn't entirely been subsumed by alcohol and bitterness. Um, the case in the movie hinges on a malpractice case where a woman went into care and was given the wrong anesthetic. The woman's sister and her husband want a restitution uh, and the hospital uh, against the hospital on behalf the, the hospital makes an offer on behalf of the two doctors who were responsible. Uh, but when Newman's character gets, the uh a renowned doctor is a witness he feels he might actually have a case that will redeem his reputation uh but uh things go wrong before they have a chance to go right uh charlotte rampling is also here she uh of the chilly disposition she's uh she's there and she has a, a a important role to play in the story um i really enjoyed uh, james mason as uh the other side of the court basically uh the um, uh, they're they're defending the uh, the doctors and uh, and one of the great character actors Jack Warden is really good here. This is a film of rooms with high ceilings and heavy looking dark wooden furniture. The lighting and cinematography is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, there's a pair of close-ups of of Newman and Rampling as they're talking in a bar, and I don't think they've ever looked better. Like it's it's a gorgeous film. I didn't think it was was a perfect film. I had some trouble. We, we found out a detail about Rampling's character later on that I found a little hard to believe, a little implausible. It felt like a twist from a different kind of a movie. But uh, beyond that, this is really all about Paul Newman, who I think should have won an Oscar for this. He's, he was up for it and lost. Uh, he had been up actually the previous year. He was nominated for a, an Academy Award for abs, Absence of Malice. and He lost to Henry Fonda. And then he lost in this year for, uh, to Ben Kingsley, who won for Gandhi. Uh, eventually, Paul Newman, after having been nominated like six times, he finally won Best Actor for Color of Money. But I feel like it was one of those like career recognitions because I don't think necessarily he was at his best in Color of Money. He was really good. But, but uh, he is at his best in The Verdict.
1: Yeah, that the, the Oscar thing is interesting because if you look at the list of nominees, that was a really tough year because also nominated was Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie, right? I think J- Jack Nicholson might have also been nominated for something that year, and then and and, and then and, and then you got Newman and then Ben Kingsley's so I, I don't know if there was a split of the vote or whatever, but it was a really really packed slate, as it were. And uh, uh, but I think of of those performances, I think Newman's is my favorite. Uh, I'm a big fan of this movie. It was great to watch it again after so many years uh Sidney lumet uh of course is a master of courtroom dramas i think his first feature was uh, 12 angry men and uh you know which you know kind of set the tone for legal dramas for the next you know couple of decades and he's made other films set in the courtroom uh, prince of the city um about police corruption and q a with nick nolte and and uh maybe the less remembered guilty is sin with uh, rebecca de mornay and um don johnson which i feel like i watched but cannot remember a thing about it. <laughs> um but but here he's in his prime we've got this the just the the setting the the kind of rainy dark brown oak lined office settings of the film it, it really kind of soaks you into this kind of downcast dour legal world and uh, you know and you can you can sort of see how Newman would just be kind of absorbed by it and and kind of beaten down by it over the years and and watching him get that spark back over the course of the film is one of the one of the real joys of it you know when when he kind of regains his humanity and then uh you know when he asks when he realizes that he could take this to trial and you see the spark come into his eyes uh, it's just an amazing performance and and, and, and you see what he's up against with, uh, you know, James Mason, um, Concanon's firm, you know, with this sort of full table of lawyers ready to attack it from every angle and the, the judge who has nothing but contempt for him and and all that. Um, it's uh, it's it's really a powerful film and, and makes you, you know, obviously it celebrates the legal system when it works at its best, uh, even when the odds are against you, which of course isn't necessarily how it goes in real life. But... Uh, but it, it 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 does have that real gravity to it, but but also also some humor, and, and and Newman is is just aces from start to finish.
0: He really is, yeah. This is if you're a Paul Newman fan, and haven't seen the verdict, then see the verdict, because it's something special. Uh, funnily, a little uh, bit of uh, trivia about this film: when he gives his closing <laughs> argument, Bruce Willis is in the spectators. Uh, uh, he's in the back. If you have a, a good copy of this on Blu-ray or or on DVD, I think even streaming, you should be able to see him. He's uh, quite recognizable with his smirk. Um, apparently, it's his first appearance on film.
1: Once you see him, you can't not see him. <laughs> so, like, I, I almost wish I didn't know this before watching it again, but uh, there he is.
0: There he is, see. yep. Uh, now, we only have a few minutes left, and we want to squeeze in a couple of more films that we watched. Uh, the first one is Fracture, which is available on Amazon Prime. And it's a twisted little murder mystery, very trashy of the sort that we don't see that often these days, not as often as I'd like, frankly. Um, I think it's fair to say everyone here, all the actors are, are slumming, but it's a lot of fun. Anthony Hopkins plays a wealthy engineer who, who attempts to murder his cheating spouse, played by M. Beth Davits. Uh, turns out she was having an affair with the arresting officer, which deeply complicates the trial and the case of the district attorney, Willie Beecham, played by a wonderfully cocky Ryan Gosling in his young sort of Tom Cruise style character. Um, He's just gotten a new corporate job and he's about to make big bucks, but he can't go to that job where he has not only a a lovely and very potent, formidable boss played by Rosamund Pike, who immediately has like a genuine romantic sexual chemistry with. But um, he's got, he's gonna have like a big. A new life, and but he can't do that until he's completed this case. Um, This is a lot of fun. It's the kind of movie that teaches you a lot about character by what kind of cars they drive. The uh, Anthony Hopkins drives this supercar Porsche, where while uh, uh, Ryan Gosling drives uh, like a nineteen eighties BMW. Uh, it is. Uh, it was. It's a blast. But uh, they actually, of all the movies we're talking about today, is probably the one that spends the least time in the courtroom. But it is still a courtroom drama.
1: Yeah, everybody in this movie is kind of punching below their weight. It's a total. <laughs> I, I wrote down the words implausible potboiler, but it, it's it's a film I remember kind of coming and going pretty quickly back uh, in uh, 2007 when it came out. But it, you know, it is fun to to finally see this and just kind of revel in its level of kind of cheesiness and earnestness at the same time and uh you know what passes for a twist is pretty weak sauce i thought (laughs) in the film but but it is kind of fun to see this kind of cast dealing with this kind of not hokey but but certainly uh you know more pulpy kind of material and uh and and it's yeah and it's from a, a a director who's Better known for his TV work on like Hill Street Blues and NYPD Blue and so on, so not necessarily the most uh, cinematic thing you'll ever see. But if it's it's the sort of thing you might want to check out if it shows up on a streaming service or even on regular TV or wherever you might come across it.
0: Well, it is on Amazon Prime, so there you go. Oh, I, I, yeah, I right. really I really enjoyed it, almost despite myself. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. But uh, I think you like Just Mercy more than I did, Stephen. So maybe you want to talk so. about that plot. I, I that's um. It came out last, late last year, and I think people, I think the studios were hoping it would be a contender at the Oscars, and it was ignored. Um, but uh, it's it's a it's a courtroom drama with a very important subject, important message. But uh, I found it pretty conventional. But it does have some pretty solid performances from Michael B. Jordan and Jamie Fox. But uh, Stephen, why don't you uh, tell us what it's a, what
1: it's about? Yeah, I I do agree with you that uh, director Destin Daniel Cretton kind of goes about it in a very prosaic, kind of straightforward way telling the story of um, kind of, a, not a crusading lawyer, but uh, but Michael B. Jordan plays Brian Stevenson based on a real life lawyer who devoted his life to helping prisoners on death row, especially, I mean, obviously, especially the ones that were wrongly convicted and were guilty and were going to the gas chamber or the electric chair as the case may be uh, in the United States, in the Southern United States. Uh, and so it's pretty potent stuff, especially when he's dealing with a man who was, uh, unjustly accused of murder, uh Walter McMillan played by Jamie Foxx. And 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 really those those two actors are the reason to watch this. But um, you know, they give terrific performances. Uh they're two different styles, I find, uh, are an interesting fit. Uh uh and uh, you know, I, I, I always appreciate how Michael B. Jordan always feels like he's holding something in reserve. Um but it's also, you know, it, it is an interesting and compelling look at the justice system and how it it uh, really is not set up to favor uh you know black defendants in a lot of ways it's the the film is uh looks at the you know if you want to look at the black lives matter from a legal standpoint and and why so many uh young black men get incarcerated this film gives you a pretty good idea of why that's happening um especially south of the mason dixon line where there are um you know the the systemic racism has been in place for decades and decades and uh and just how hard it is to fight against that and i feel that that's what the film does really well but as we talked about even before we started uh, the, the podcast uh, there the, you know there are some very boilerplate speechifying kind of uh, moments of dialogue that don't ring true um there there might have been a, a, a slightly better more authentic way to tell this story but i find that that the performances and the the setting uh you know, I think it was filmed in Georgia. Set in Alabama, but I think it was filmed in Georgia. But I, I feel like it's it's it feels authentic, and uh, the pluses for me outweigh the minus. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, okay, fair enough. I, 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 also I felt like the most interesting story in the movie was the one around O'Shea Jackson Jr., who's been locked up for thirty years. He's another death row inmate, and I would have liked to have seen more about him because I felt like he had a lot of interesting things. You know, his character was was maybe even more interesting. Um, Anyway, I also should say about the subject. I'd like to see. I'd like to suggest people watch *Clemency* with Alfre Woodard, another recent film built around some similar material, uh, conveying the horror of the death penalty and the uh, prison industrial complex. But uh, but yeah, still, I mean, maybe this. I think this would be worth seeing for the performances. Um, and uh, and yeah, and, and it is certainly another uh, a recent and. Uh, uh, valid uh, entry into this genre. You have been listening to Lens Near Ears, and we very much appreciate that. Uh, we have have finished up our final arguments now, and uh, court is just about our session is complete. Uh, thanks so much uh, for uh, indulging this uh, this look at um, courtroom dramas. And uh, just now time to say the final words, which is that uh, we are available on Facebook. If you would like to reach out to us, we have a Facebook page. We are also on Twitter uh, at Lens Me Your Ears. And Stephen, you're also on Twitter.
1: Yes, at NS underscore SCOOKE.
0: And I'm on Twitter, the name of my blog, Flaw in the Iris. I want to say thanks to uh, CKDU for the studio facilities when we are able to take advantage of them and for airing... Uh, This show, every second Tuesday at 5.30 on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax. Um, And many, many thanks as well to our producers at the Village Soundcast Network for dotting the I's, crossing the T's, and making sure the papers are in order when uh, we need to go to court. And again, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you again about movies
1: soon. Court is adjourned.